seat. We continue in our first Peter series this morning, and I love this about Peter. If you haven't noticed this about him already, he does not shy away from tough, heavy topics. And we want to be like that. We don't want to shy away from difficult topics. We don't want to shy away from tricky scriptures here at Pulpit Rock. Um, scripture, it is sad to say, can so easily be mishandled. I'm sure if we asked everyone in this room, there are a lot of you that would say that's happened to you. Maybe you have some wounds from the way scripture has been mishandled. Or maybe you believe something that wasn't true that has since been revealed to you by God that is true. Um, that's the beautiful thing about our redemptive God is that he can take those things that are broken or untrue um, or those ways that we've been hurt and the Bible has been used as a weapon and he can redeem that and I believe he'll do that today. Um, we have some tri tricky scriptures today. We had a heavy topic last week as well and just um, as a preaching team wanted to, to tell you how we engage with scripture. We care deeply about handling scripture well and relaying truth. Um, we do that in a couple of ways I wanted to invite you to consider to do as well. First and foremost, we engage with the Holy Spirit, our guide. We make space for the Spirit to lead us. Um, we engage intentionally asking the Spirit, what are the needs of our people's hearts? We ask the Spirit to lead us, what is God's heart for us? And um, we do provide moments to do that here in the services, like Corey explained earlier. And we want that to happen here, but that doesn't only have to happen here. Um, truth doesn't just come from a person with a microphone speaking from a stage. The Spirit is available to all of us. So we invite you to take the Spirit with you as you go and engage in these truths that you hear and let the Spirit speak to you. And we also rely on each other. You know, God did this tricky thing with us where he designed us to need each other. And, and just when you think there's someone that you can't learn anything from or can't see God in, he actually reveals himself through others. And so as a preaching team, we do a lot of, a lot of that. We, um, we've had tons of conversations about this sermon um, over the last few weeks in preparation, talking about what we know to be true, what God has spoken to us, the experiences that we've had, so that we can learn from each other and have a more holistic view of these scriptures that we're engaging in together. And that's why we're always saying, hey, engage in a small group um, or jump in the class that, that um, talks about the sermon that happens each Sunday. And we encourage you to do the same. Lean on each other and let's journey um, on this faith journey together and learn from each other. It's such a beautiful thing. Um, I'm excited about the sermon that John, Jonathan has prepared for us this morning. Um, it's powerful and there's a lot of truth to it. And before I invite him up, uh, I want to read a scripture over you. It's 1 John 5.20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jonathan. Thanks, Susie. I am excited, too, about this sermon, about this, where we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, find your way there. Uh, but I want to start today asking you a question. Have you ever heard the phrase, unreliable narrator? Have you ever heard of that concept, the unreliable narrator? 
Uh, if you're an English major or something like that, you might be familiar with this. It is a storytelling device, so you would see it in books or in film, uh, where the story is going to be told from the perspective of someone that you later find out is untrustworthy in their retelling. There's a few different ways that you can do this. The, uh, like the stories with the big twist are like this. So like if you've read the book, The Life of Pi or Fight Club, I'm not going to spoil the twist, but you eventually find out the person telling you the story has purposefully deceived you about something. Um, or it could be that the storyteller is naive in some ways. So if you have seen the movie Forrest Gump, that's what this movie is like. It's a, an interesting story because we know the significance significance of the historical events that Forrest Gump is living through, and he doesn't. He's just telling the story of him and Jenny, right? But we're like, that's really important, and that's what makes it interesting. So there's a few different ways to do it, but the concept is this. The unreliable narrator is that the storyteller doesn't give you an accurate description of what is actually happening in the story. What Peter knows about you and I is that we often can be unreliable narrators to our own lives. And the version of the story that we a lot of times believe is often compromised and biased and inaccurate. And, and Peter knows that because it was true in his life. He had all these stories that work in his life. And Jesus came along and said, no, 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 that's not the real story. This is the real story. And he introduced him to the true story. And now Peter, knowing that this is also something his reader has done, is going to tell us the true story of our life. And he's going to try to free us from some of the unreliable narratives that we embrace. And the big picture, the big narrative is this, is that we may think that our story is a story of suffering and a story of rejection from other people, but he's saying, no, 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 that's not your story. Your true story is that of someone who has been chosen by God to be an agent of his kingdom on earth. That's what you're doing here. That's your story. Sometimes we tell ourselves a different story. We're unreliable narrators. And if there's any area that we can be uh, most often unreliable in our narration, it has to be our relationships, especially our primary relationships. Um, specifically, if you are married, it's in your marriage. That's true. If you are married, you need to know you are not always the most reliable narrator of your marriage story. I hope I haven't wrecked anyone's day today, but that is true. Today, Peter, he's going to address that, and so we're going to do something that we rarely do today uh, at Pulpit Rock. We're going to just talk about marriage in this sermon. And if you're not married, please hear me. I'm not trying to exclude you. I actually think if you're not married, this is really important stuff to understand about men and women and about marriage in general. Uh, but we're just going to focus specifically on marriage. Uh, we know this. Peter was married, so he's speaking with a little bit of credibility. We don't know a lot about his marriage, but he's going to tell us in this passage what he thinks marriage is really about, about why it exists and about what that story actually is of marriage. But it's going to be similar to last week. Week, where we have to get behind his eyes a little bit to really understand what he sees and what he's talking about. This was 2,000 years ago, and if we do that, we'll actually see this is really quite beautiful what he says. Um, find 1 Peter 3, and here's the big picture. I'll tell you, no spoilers here, I will tell you the end of the story. Here's what he's going to tell us about marriage today. If you are married, 
then your story is you've been called by God to care for the heart of your spouse in ways that will lead them to God. That's the story. That's worth writing down. Like if you have a spouse or if you're ever going to have a spouse, like that is worth writing down. When you say yes to marriage, you are saying yes to a partnership with God to care for your spouse's heart in ways that help them find God, that lead them to God. And the challenge of us, of marriage for all of us, is this, is we tend to make it about ourselves. We're unreliable in our narration, and so we get real bitter because our spouse doesn't meet all of our needs, and we become resentful. Or maybe we get so focused on our ability to meet our spouse's needs that we lose ourselves in that. And Peter's going to say, no, 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 no. Your marriage story is not about you. It is about God, not us. Our role as a spouse is just to care for the heart of our spouse, to care for it in ways that help them see Jesus. That's what Peter's going to tell us today. Here's how he says it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, that probably needs some unpacking. Um, Peter, he's talking to the wives here. In just a second, he's going to get to the husbands, but this first section is just all about the wives. And he starts by saying that wives should be subject to their own husbands. Later in uh, verse 5, he's going to use the word submission and submit to their husbands. But before we let our minds get too far down the road, a couple of things that we need to understand right away. First, the Bible does not teach that women should submit to men. It doesn't. It doesn't. It does talk about submission. The New Testament talks about submission, and when it does, it talks about wives submitting to husbands. It talks about believers submitting to one another, which, by the way, includes believing husbands submitting to believing wives. It also talks about believers submitting to spiritual authority or children submitting to their parents, and it talks about believers submitting to the authority of government. But the idea that by virtue of a man, you carry some God-given authority over women in general is patently unbiblical. It's just not true. And frankly, it's been taught by insecure men who misread the Bible. In the, biblically, biblical authority, which is an important concept to understand in the Bible, biblical authority is always tied to a God-given role not to gender. So that is not what this is about. Being a man does not give you authority biblically. And Peter is not saying, wives, you need to submit to your husband because you're a woman and he's a man. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he is saying is this, do this thing that we'll call submission, and we'll talk about what that is in a second, but do this thing called submission so that this other thing will happen. And the point of the act is the other thing. Okay? He's not saying submit because you're a woman. He's saying submit so that this thing, this goal, this mission that we're about can be accomplished. So what is the other thing? Here's what he says. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, a couple things we need to note about this. First, he is talking to believing women who have unbelieving husbands. 
That's the group that he is addressing here. And we should note this. He's going to spend six verses talking to these women and only one verse talking to their male counterparts. Now, you may say, well, that seems unfair. And maybe it is a little bit unfair, but we have to understand that this is first century Rome. And women, by default, adopted the religion of their husband. It was assumed that they would just go along with the religion of their husband. And for the most part, they didn't have a choice. So for Peter to say, listen, women, sisters, I am not going to lump you in with the religion of your husband. You have your own soul. You have your own faith. And it matters. You are your own person. That conveys a little bit of significance and dignity to these women that a lot of people in Peter's day, frankly, would just not have done. And likely, the reason that he's going to spend six verses on the, uh, the, the situation of these women is because he is concerned that they are in a vulnerable position, and they were in a vulnerable position. These women had to very wisely navigate the relationship with their pagan husbands, who frankly were probably not very sympathetic about the whole Jesus thing. And so Peter is writing to these women, he's saying, listen, this is a challenge for you, and I want to help you navigate this challenge. He is respecting them as sisters in the faith, and he's trying to give them some wisdom. Now, what's fascinating to me is the reason that he gives for this advice about submission. He says, the reason that I'm talking about this is solely so that this man's attitude about Jesus may change because of the respect that you have for him. Again, this is what we looked at last week with slaves and with the government and all this sort of stuff. That Peter is single-mindedly focused on the mission of God to win people to the gospel. And he's saying, wives, if you have an unbelieving husband, the point is the mission of God. That's what I'm trying to address here. You've been sent as an agent of God's kingdom and you've even been sent to this man. Now, wives, there's something else implicit in what he's saying that I think we just need to pause and notice here. Implicit in what he's saying to these women is this, that your respect as a wife has spiritual power in the life of your husband. It's true. Women, let me tell you something about every man that you have ever met, especially about your husband. Uh, this is true of all of us. Every man you've ever met lives with this question in his heart. Am I respectable? And that question, it will never go away. We might call it different things, but that's the core of it. It will never go away. And in our unhealth as men, we take that question and we lay it down at all this earthly stuff that's never going to answer that question for us. So we might use different words, but we bring that question to our job. We bring that question to our sexuality. We bring that question to our fathers. We bring that question to our ability to provide. We even bring that question to stupid stuff like sports. Have you ever met ladies uh, like the classic, like the middle-aged, out-of-shape guy who can't stop talking about the glory days in high school when he was a great athlete? Let me tell you what that's about. That may be one of the last times that that guy ever felt respectable. This is deep in us as men. And ultimately, hear me, ladies, if you are married to a man, if you hear nothing else, hear this and write this down. Only God can answer that question for us. You cannot. In the eternal way that it needs to be answered, only God can answer that question for us. You cannot. And even though we bring that question to everything else in our life and we're like, you should answer this for me, you can't. 
If you're married to a man, he's going to bring that question to you as his wife all the time, but you can't ultimately answer it. Only God can. All you can do is care for it in his brokenness. And so biblical submission, it is about that. Biblical submission is about caring for that question in your husband's soul. That's all it's about. It is not about power. It is not about decision-making. It's not about who gets their way. And I know that some men have taught that it is, that submission is about power, but they ignore all of the verses that say that your husband should defer to you and wash your feet and submit to you every chance he gets if he really loves you. And Peter's going to say that stuff to your husband. But here he's talking to the wives, and what he's saying to these wives about their their husbands is they have this broken part of their soul that has to do with respect. There's this unanswered question that he is carrying around, and when you care for that part of his soul, it leads him to God. It helps him find Jesus, and that's the point, ultimately, of marriage. You know, we get very fixated on this word submit, and I think rightly so, because it has been misused for years. But I think all it means when you read submit, it doesn't mean do what your husband says. That's not what it means. It just means care for the heart of this man who wonders every day if he is worthy of respect. And Peter uses that word. Paul uses that word with wives. And when they do, it is because of the nature of men's brokenness that they use that word. It's because of the nature of what leads us as men to God. It has nothing to do with God not wanting women to lead. You want to know what biblical submission is? Submission is asking this question. What speaks respect to my husband's heart? That's all it is. And every wife who loves her husband should ask that question. What speaks respect to my husband's heart? That's what Peter is encouraging these women to do. Women, if you're married, Peter's trying to redefine your story. He's saying that your story is to help this guy find Jesus. God chose you to be his partner in caring for that broken part of his soul. And that just simple care will help him be more open to the things of God. Now, Peter's not done with the wives. He continues... Verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, this also warrants a little bit of explanation because, again, verses like this have been used at times to shame women about how they dress or to shame assertive and confident women about their assertiveness. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter's doing two things here. One is he is cautioning against some practices in Roman culture that were focused on appearance and status and wealth. And this idea of braiding hair, gold jewelry, doesn't mean anything to us, but it meant something to these people back then. And because of the nature of the persecution that they were experiencing, what Peter is basically saying to them is, hey, y'all need to just lay low a little bit. If you have money, don't draw attention to it. Don't get caught up in that status thing. Just like be like lay low under the radar. That's what he's saying. The other thing he's saying is this, cultivate the inner person, not the external person. He says, that's going to help you in this mission. Cultivate the inner person. He says, what makes you beautiful to God is what is on the inside, which is a simple message, which is a beautiful message. 
And ladies, I, I'm sorry that some people have stood in a pulpit and weaponized that verse and told you that God prefers you to be quiet and like a doormat. That is not true. That's not Peter's point. I married a confident woman, an assertive woman who is a gifted leader. Um, she's not particularly quiet. She has a lot of great things to say, and I love that about her. Um, I, I would not change that one bit. I love her big personality. I encourage it. I'm like, yes, say more. And I think this is the point. I would grieve and God would grieve if she was anything less than everything he created her to be. That's not what this is about. Also, I have seen my wife in places like the tent of a Muslim Syrian refugee family. And in those contexts... I've seen her be appropriately herself, not faking it, but just an appropriate version of herself for the context, knowing that the priority in that context is building a bridge to unbelievers who are very culturally different than we are. And because she's a gifted leader, she has the capacity to be authentically herself in thoughtful ways that don't violate the culture of the people she's trying to reach. But also because she has cultivated the inner character, she has the humility to do that. That's what Peter is saying here. He's, he's not saying that God prefers quiet women. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, be thoughtful about the context to which we have been sent because of the mission. And in light of that mission, be appropriately yourself around the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel. Now, he ends this part to women in verse 5 and 6. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So again, submit, what does it mean? It means what speaks respect to my husband's heart. That's I'm going to care for that brokenness in him. But also, we shouldn't overlook this part right at the end where he says, don't fear anything that's frightening. That's a weird thing to say. Why is he saying that? Well, it speaks to what he's writing about in the first place. He knows that these sisters in Christ of his are vulnerable. They face some frightening realities. They didn't have a lot of power culturally. Most of them didn't have the option of saying, I don't want to get married. That wasn't really on the table. They didn't have the option of saying, I want to leave my husband. He doesn't treat me well. That wasn't on the table. These women faced these frightening realities, and because Peter respects them, he believes that their faith matters as an individual He's trying to help them navigate some of the challenges that they were facing as women. That is his heart, to help, not control. That's, it's my heart too. Um, our context is very different. In our context, I feel compelled to say this. Um, women, if you are experiencing some frightening realities in your marriage, um, it, like if the respect issues in your husband's heart, if his brokenness is leading him to abuse you or, or your children, uh, first thing you need to know is you are powerless to fix that for him. That's not how it works. The only thing you can do is get help and stop it. There's a website, a number on the screen. Uh, it wasn't possible 2,000 years ago for these women to reach out and get the sort of help that we have available to us today. It is today, and that is God's grace for you. Um, and so I just, I pray, reach out, 
get help. Amen. Now, Peter, he's going to turn and he's going to address the men. He's going to talk to the husbands for a second. Husbands, you ready? He says a lot less to us, which is nice, but it's equally potent. It's shorter, but very potent. Um, Okay, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's unpack that. He says, husbands, you need to understand this woman that you've married. Your wife is a husband who follows Jesus, should walk around feeling like, gosh, that guy really sees me. He really knows my heart. He really knows who I am. And just like he does with the wives, Peter is going to try to clue us in as husbands into something that he knows is true of every woman's heart. Now, ladies, I realize it's a little presumptuous of me to stand up here as a man, reading a letter written by a man, telling everyone what's true in all the hearts of women, right? So I get this, I like it, it's a little silly, but bear with me and just trust me when I say this. I have some strong women leaders in my life. I married a strong woman leader. I try to cultivate that at our church. I've talked to my sisters about what I'm about to say. Um, so this is not in a vacuum, um, but even so, if I say something and you're like, that's not it, just email me. <laughs> And I will respond. No, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, What Peter says is this. Husbands, you have to embrace your God-given calling to live with your wife in a way that creates in her a feeling that she's understood by you. And then he says you have to honor her as the weaker vessel. What in the world does that mean? Like, is he saying women are inferior in some way to men? No, he actually anticipates you might think that. So he throws in this line, they are heirs with you of the grace of life, which is a statement that really elevates the status of women as co-equal inheritors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things the gospel does is it elevates and it restores. There's this, all this animosity and this power struggle between the genders from the beginning of time. But in the kingdom of God, we are one, we are equal, we are full heirs of the promise just like Jesus is, right? Peter says there's no inequality here. She is an heir with you. So what does he mean when he says the woman is the weaker vessel? Well, I looked it up in the Greek to see if that would help. It's not particularly helpful. It says uh, in Greek, if we were to literally translate it, less strong dish. That's what it says. Um, (laughs) It's basically the same. So uh, let me take a stab at what Peter is actually trying to say here. Husbands, here's what I think he means. Guys, I want you to picture you're standing in an elevator, waiting to get on an elevator, um, and the doors open, okay? And in the elevator already is some guy, some dude. What do you think in that moment? You might think what I think, which is, I hope I don't have to talk to this guy for 30 seconds while we ride in this elevator together. Um, But you likely almost never think, is it safe to get on? Is it safe to be in this enclosed space with this stranger? Women have to think about stuff like that all the time. 
And I think the point that Peter is making about the wives to the husband with this phrase is, husbands realize your wife lives with a vulnerability that you need to understand. Women carry a vulnerability in this world that we as men just do not. That's what he's trying to say with weaker vessel. And it's not just about physical safety, although surely that is a part of it. And increasingly so, we realize that has been a part of it for way too long, that women's physical safety is sometimes in jeopardy around men. But it certainly also is about emotional safety and relational safety, that there is a vulnerability in the heart of a woman. And Peter is saying, if you have said yes to being a husband, then what you've said yes to is to partner with God so that you understand that and so that you take care of it and that you honor her so that she can find God. Just like us as husbands, we live with this respect question that never goes away. Husbands, your wife lives with a question, something like this. Is my heart safe? Will I be seen? Will I be cared for? And that question will never go away. And just like what we do with our question and our unhealth about respect, we take it all these other things, women do the same thing. They bring that question with them into whatever they do in life. And ultimately, it's a question that just like with us, only God can answer for women. But in unhealth, women will chase love to get that question answered. Ultimately, if she's married, a wife is going to bring that question to her husband again and again. And I don't, know, I don't care if she hasn't ever asked it. She is bringing it to you as a husband. Husbands, honoring her means caring for that question in your wife's soul. And when you do it well, that sort of care for her heart, it'll help her connect to God. By the way, just to put to rest the idea that Peter is saying that somehow there's inequality here and that men should have all the power in marriage, he tells the husbands to honor their wives. That word honor is the same Greek root word that he uses when he says honor the emperor of Rome over in chapter two. So he says to the husbands, would you treat her like you would treat the ruler of the known world, right? I mean, so in English, be subject to and honor, those sound very different and almost scandalously unequal. But in Greek, this is very challenging for both the husbands and the wives, and it is intended to be so. Peter is not making marriage about who gets to be in charge. And he certainly isn't saying, well, a man gets to be in charge. Biblical marriage was never intended to be about power and control. And when we ask questions about power and control, about something like marriage that was intended to be centered around love and understanding, then we get all sorts of weird answers and weird interpretations. If anything, husbands, Peter's saying, God gets to be in charge in your marriage. You don't. God does. And as the one in charge, your job is to just look to him as your partner to understand and honor your wife's vulnerable heart in the ways that she needs and that God reveals to you. I wish sometimes, I'm sure husbands, you could relate to this, sometimes I wish this whole honoring thing, uh, I, I wish it was like an equation or like a really simple, th- like step one, two, three. It's not, which is why Peter starts with this idea of, I live with her in an understanding way. He says, you've got to get behind her eyes. 
So honor is asking this question. What makes my wife's heart feel safe and seen? And asking that question every day. Because of her unique brokenness as a woman, she's going to be asking that question every day. So as a husband, we need to be asking that question every day. I don't know about you uh, guys, I don't really ever feel horribly equipped to answer that question. Uh, And women, you may not feel equipped to answer that question your husband is asking. The good news is this. Ultimately, the care, the emotional safety, the respect that we long for, we're going to find in Jesus. This is not about being Jesus to your spouse. You can't. This is not about meeting every need they have. You'll never be able to. This is just about caring for the unique ways that they are broken as a person. And when we take that seriously, take seriously the story we've been invited into, it helps them find the person who can ultimately answer that question, and that's Jesus. Now, that's all Peter says to the men, and that's it kind of feels unfair, right? I mean, I, I wish like in this section he would go off on like the way men dress and their haircuts and be like, listen, man buns, just cut it out, guys. Stop it. Um, but as I said, like he's speaking to men who were much, much less culturally vulnerable than these women were. And so I don't think he's intending to be unfair. I think he's just speaking to the things that he's worried about for these people. And he's trying to help them redefine their marriage story. He's saying, God chose you to be his partner in caring for the broken heart of your spouse. That's what this story is about. That's what your marriage is about. Learning to do that helps them connect to God. So he talks about submission and respect. He talks about honor and understanding. He is not at any point talking about passive surrender to the control of your spouse. He's not. Nor is he at any point talking about being consumed with the emotional needs of your spouse. He's not talking about that. He is talking about playing our role so the heart of our spouse can be cared for and they can find Jesus. Let me give you uh, maybe just three quick tips And then I'll close. Three quick tips here. Uh, The first is this. Your spouse doesn't need to earn this from you. Tip one. Your spouse doesn't need to earn this from you. That's not how love works. Your spouse doesn't need to earn this from you. That's not how God loves us. It doesn't matter what they have done or not done. You can care for them. They're worthy of it because they're created in the image of God. God cares for them, and he's looking for a partner in that, and God will care for them for the rest of their lives. And he's just looking for you to partner with him, regardless of what your spouse has done or not done. Tip number two, these verses, they're about you, not your spouse. If your focus in marriage becomes policing the job your spouse is doing at loving you, then love in your marriage will functionally end at that point. You don't have to believe me on that, but I am right. (laughs) Listen, marriage is not, marriage has never been, and it will never be about getting someone to love you well. It's not what marriage is about. Marriage is about learning to love someone well. That's what you've said yes to if you're married. The only hope for your marriage is that you do what God calls you to do and you release everything else 
that you embrace that calling and you release everything else. And honestly, some of us, like daily, maybe just need to forgive our spouse for not meeting all of our needs. Just release them from that burden. They were never going to meet all of our needs because they're not Jesus. Tip number three. Not everyone's called to be married. I know that's not the sort of thing we say at church a lot, but uh, listen, marriage, it is a unique calling. Like Peter's describing it this way, this unique calling of like a mission trip to that one person to care for their heart for the rest of their life. And if you've said yes to that calling, please don't give up on it. It's worth it. Abandoning that calling is not going to make you all that happier, right? Succeeding at it is going to make you happy. So walk with God, trust Him, learn to succeed in that calling. But if you're not married, you don't have to say yes to that calling. Marriage is no more or less spiritual. It's just a specific type of spiritual story. And that's what Peter wants us to see. It is about helping our spouse see God. So let me close. As we close, uh, I think there's a lesson that just needs to be stated again. Uh, Peter, he's making it clear that the point of this whole thing is caring well for the heart of our spouse, leading them to God. We should pay attention to that, and we should pay attention to what he doesn't say. Peter does not say, find someone who completes you, right? Like, he doesn't say that. In fact, what he's saying is, if you do your job as a spouse really well, then your spouse will find Jesus and Jesus will complete them. Jesus will heal them. Jesus will redeem their broken places. And so I think here's the lesson for all of us who are married. Married people, your spouse is not your problem, nor is he or she your solution. The solution is the gospel of the grace of Jesus, living for the kingdom of God. That's always the solution. I love, I love marriage. I love being married. I am a huge fan of it. I love having a partner. I love the intimacy. I love the connection. I love the challenge of it because it's hard sometimes, um, my wife has told me. <laughs> sometimes for me, marriage can become an idol upon which I fix all of my hopes. You know, Peter is telling these people again and again, it's not that. It is about the gospel of grace. That is our first and our last story, and even your marriage is about that story. I think we need to hear that regularly. I think we need to realize those ways that we've been an unreliable narrator in our lives. We've made it about us. You know, we've put our hopes in things that can never do for us what only Jesus can do. Peter's trying to say, no, that's not your story. You have this different story. It's a story of God's grace in your life, a story where he is the one who heals your broken places. And because of that healing that you've received from the gospel, because of that story, you can then stand in the gap to care for somebody else and their brokenness. And you and I will never find rest until we take those broken places to God find ourselves in that gospel story. So God, we come to you today just seeking to do that. We bring our brokenness to you. We bring our broken places to you. And we acknowledge this, that the greatest love in our lives is your love for us. God, I'm thankful for marriage. And God, I just pray for us as a community that it would never become an idol 
to us. God, my sense is maybe just this has been a hard year for marriage. My sense is that maybe this has been a year where uh, some cracks have been revealed and uh, we've put some hopes in our spouse that maybe we should have put in you. So God, I just pray for the marriages in this community that somehow for each of us as husbands and wives, that we would look at the brokenness inside of us and that we would bring that to you to receive the love you have for us. And that in doing that, that you would heal our brokenness, that you would make us whole, and that you would give us the strength to just provide the care that our spouse needs. We thank you for your love, God. We want to find ourselves there more than anywhere else. In Jesus' name, amen.